earlier in the service, Psalm 133, that beautiful psalm of brotherly unity. And that psalm tells us that unity in God's people is necessary. It's like the oil that is poured out on the high priest's head and flows down to the very bottom of his garments. Necessary for life, because if the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies without that oil, he would be struck dead. So it's necessary. It's vital. Can't live without it. And it's refreshing. The unity, the communion of saints is this refreshing, this life-giving, joy-giving refreshment, just like the, the dew that falls down on that dry land around Jerusalem coming from the snowy peaks of Mount Hermon further to the north. It's refreshing. It's life-giving. It gives joy. And the psalmist tells us where the source of all this is. It is in Zion, the dwelling place of God. There the Lord has commanded his blessing. Where he is present on this earth. Where he is to be worshipped. That's the source of the life-giving joy and blessing of the unity of the communion of saints. So as we come to our text this morning in Genesis chapter 13, we see God carefully building this little greenhouse in which he will nurture Israel, the holy seed, until the coming of the Messiah. You know that as Genesis has come along, it's been very, very broad at first, dealing with all the nations. But now in Genesis chapter 12, it is, it's a laser focus. Everything narrows as God concentrates and focuses on Abraham and his descendants to keep alive the knowledge of the truth of God, to keep alive the true worship of God until the coming of Jesus. What God does from this point right through to the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New, is he's not only gathering his people by his word and spirit, but he's also separating those who are just hanging on, who don't really belong, who don't participate, who don't see the value in unity in true worship. God is not about aggregating as many numbers as possible to look impressive. In fact, the Bible says that he chose Israel, it was the least of the nations. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord actually tells Israel, don't think you're so important because you know what you were like when I found you? And he goes on to compare his church, his people, with an abortion, a child abandoned in an open field and rolling around in the blood of its afterbirth. God doesn't go for the big and the impressive. God is building a church which is united in true faith. And that's what we see in our text this morning as well. Now, 
first four verses we did go over in the last sermon, so I'm going to start at verse 5. We'll refer back somewhat, perhaps, but we'll start at verse 5 in our chapter and, and see, you remember what happened? They, they'd go down to Egypt. He had accumulated a lot of wealth there. They, they'd come back, and apparently the famine's over now. And through, throughout the story that we've been reading, throughout the narrative, we keep reading about Lot basically with these two words, and Lot. If you, if you go through from Genesis 12 on, Lot's kind of just always mentioned as, as an afterthought. Abram left Haran, and he took Sarah and everybody else, and Lot. And here we have it again, verse 5, and Lot went with Abram. Abram comes back up from Egypt, and Lot comes along with him. That's as much as we read about Lot so far, just and Lot, and Lot, and Lot. But now we're going to see a little bit more about him in our chapter. So we move on to verse 6. The land cannot support both of them. Why not? Because Lot had lots of flocks and herds as well as Abram did. Their possessions are so great. It's not because they can't get along personally. It's because they have so many physical, material blessings. And we see that getting lots of material blessings from God brings its own challenges, doesn't it? It can lead to, to strife or to difficulties in relationships. There's a family business and different people uh, are participating in the business. And the more the family grows and the more the, the business grows, the more challenges there are. So great material blessing from God doesn't always mean things are going to be easier. It requires a lot of prayer, a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment. And it can lead to what we see in this text here in verse 7. It leads to strife. Now, the strife isn't between Abram and Lot. But first of all, between the people on the ground that are dealing with the problem, they have flocks, they have herds. It's a scrubby, semi-arid area. It's a land which depends on rain from God. Uh, water is a precious resource, and everybody's fighting over the same water. And it's going to get irritating after a while if day in, day out, you're struggling with others for access to limited resources. It's enough to test the patience of anyone, let alone the greatest saint. So there they are. There is strife. And we're reminded by this that Abram is not just one guy living in a tent or a guy walking around with a backpack. These are large communities. Abram's retinue at this point is probably around, as possibly it's around 2,000 people. There's a lot of families, a lot of men and women and children, a lot of flocks and herds, a lot of tents. And then on top of that, there's Lot with his people and his animals. And the land cannot sustain the two of them together. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land, tell, the, the, um, the narrative tells us, and that can mean a lot of things, why Canaanites and Perizzites are mentioned here and not all the other ites that you read as you go through the Old Testament, that's a question. But most likely here in verse 7, Canaanites, which is the, the general descriptor of the nations living in the land at this time, uh, would be referring to the more sophisticated ones, that the urbanized ones that live in the cities, whereas Perizzites, the word Perizzites is linked to the word village and perhaps refers to the, the people living more in the country. And so Abram has to deal with the problem, and he does. Verse 8, 
And as, as we read Abram's response to this problem, his reaction to this problem, we see that he's the father of believers. He's, this is our father in the faith. And we see this, this, the character of faith in the way he acts. We see him being gracious and gentle and humble and, and seeking the interests, not of himself, but of others. We see the fruit of the Spirit, in a sense. The Holy Spirit has not yet come to live in people's hearts the way he lives today. But he certainly was active in people's hearts and lives through the Word. And Abram is as Christian as you can get before the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. And so he faces the problem honestly, and he takes responsibility. He doesn't say, hey, there's a problem between some other people, you know, they should deal with it. No, he says, let there be no strife between you and me. He takes ownership, and he expects Lot to take ownership of his community. Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your husband and my husband, because for we are kinsmen. And then literally, the translators have written kinsmen here at the end of verse 8, but literally the Hebrew says we are men brothers. That's what the words say in Hebrew. We are men brothers. Well, that's interesting. You know who Lot is. Lot is the nephew of Abram. Lot's dad, Haran, died before they left Haran. And you would think, and you get the impression at the beginning of the story, as we're introduced to it, that, that perhaps Lot has been taken under Abram's wing as kind of a, an adopted son. His dad has passed away. It's a very patriarchal society. Lot is a young man. And there he is tagging along with Abram as Abram travels around. You kind of expect that Lot would be in the position of a son. But, but Abram treats him as a man who is his equal. Abram certainly did take him under his wings, but Abram has not exploited him. Abram has not been all patriarchal on him. Lot has his own flocks, his own herds, his own people. He's his own man, and Abram respects and treats him as a fellow man and brother. Abram's not looking to Lot to be the answer to the promise of God to have a great nation which descends from him, because the the promise has been clearly made to Abram that it is to his seed, to his offspring, that the promise is made. And so Abram says to, to Lot, verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Go ahead and choose. Now this is the land that has been promised to Abram. It's his to choose, but he puts himself down and he offers it to the other. There's a lot we can learn from this attitude. Right, children, when you're arguing about a toy and maybe you think you have more right to it than your sibling. But look at our father Abraham here. He has every right to say, well, it's my land. God promised it to me, and you just take what's left over if there is anything. That's often how we treat each other, but that's not how he acts. He acts in faith, and faith is to reflect, to hold on to the Lord Jesus and to reflect his character. And so Abram is kind and generous and open-handed. He puts the other up, and he puts himself in second place. And so he says, separate yourself from me. 
and verse 9. The word separate is pretty powerful in the English language. It can often be seen as a negative word, separate. But we first meet the word back in Genesis chapter 2, this Hebrew word. It talks about the rivers in the Garden of Eden, and there's one river, and then it diverges into different, uh, different rivers. So separate just can just mean split up or diverge. In Genesis chapter 10, at the beginning and at the end, Genesis 10.5, Genesis 10.32, it speaks about the spreading out of the nations all over the world. So it's not necessarily a, a negative word. It doesn't have to uh, come with the idea of conflict. It can simply just be spreading out. He says to Lot, we just need to spread out. We're on top of each other here. It's not working. We need to spread out. If, if you take the left, I'll go to the right. And now, the way the Hebrews spoke, the way the people spoke at this time, when they're talking left and right, they're talking north and south because they would be oriented towards the east, and so the left would be the north, and the right would be the south. And so Abram says, go wherever you want in the promised land. You can choose the best part. Even though he, by right, by precedence, by rank, he had the right to choose. He offers it to Lot. And then Lot looks. He lifts up his eyes and he saw children, listen very carefully. He saw the Jordan pita bread. Did you hear that? You say, Pastor, what are you saying pita bread for? It says here in our translation, the Jordan Valley, but it's a, a word hardly ever used for valley in the Bible. It's a word which means disc or flat bread. That's what the word is usually meaning in, in Hebrew. And so it's not just the idea of a valley. It's the idea of a large area, kind of a circular area, kind of a, a, bit, of a, dep- a bit of a depression, it's a bit of a lower area. And they're standing in a place and they can see all over this area. It's the, the southern part of the Jordan River Valley going towards the Dead Sea. And perhaps the geography has changed since the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what they're looking at, no matter how much the scholars try to, to study it up. But there's this big, open, huge, circular area, which the holy narrative, the, 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 the scriptural narrative calls the, the Jordan Valley. But that word valley, literally in the Hebrew, is the word for flatbread. And it was well-watered. It was well watered on every side, everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Well, you may ask yourself, well, how come there was so much water there if they just went to Egypt because there was a famine? We don't know how long they spent in Egypt. They could have spent some months. They could have spent a few years. That's possible. But the point is now there is water in this area. And it's so attractive that, that it looks like the very Garden of Eden. You've got to remember that the, the, the land of promise, the land of Canaan, is a land which depends on God's mercy and sending rain from the heavens. If he doesn't send rain, you don't eat. And suddenly, Lot looks up and he sees this area where you don't have to depend on the Lord. Because there are springs, and there's a river, and it's lush, and it's irrigated. And it's, it's so lush that it's like the Garden of Eden. And it's so irrigated that it reminds him of what he just saw in Egypt. 
because the Nile is a constant source of water for irrigation. They don't depend on the rains. So it's like the land of Egypt. And if you're going to be planting crops, it's a good thing to have a constant supply of water. This looks like a very attractive place to be. And it all sounds very nice, but you, you start to read in the text a few ominous sounds. There's some foreboding as we read through this language. We, we have something which is like the garden of the Lord. You have something which is greatly desired. You have, you have a, a person lifting up their eyes and seeing that something is greatly to be desired. There are just a few touches, a few tinges here. But there's some foreboding that perhaps sin is coming into the picture. So, it says this was all into the direction of Zoar. This is the last uh, words before the, the parenthesis in verse 10. It's hard to know exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Some scholars think it's more the north end of the Dead Sea, something at the south end of the southeast. It's, it's hard to conclude. It's hard to know where Zoar is, was. But the point is, it's in that area. And it's, it's a beautiful and attractive thing to Lot's eyes. And so he chooses it. He chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And the, the scripture puts in the brackets there at the end of verse 10, just a little reminder what's going to happen here. Me look really good to Lot, bracket. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, end of bracket. So the Holy Spirit's reminding us that something may look very attractive, but it may not be the right choice. It may be something which is going to bring a lot of grief in the end. And we know what happens due to Lot's choice. And so Lot chose for himself, verse 11. He chose for himself. The first time we read anything about Lot, besides kind of him tagging along, and Lot, and Lot, and Lot. Now, so Lot chose for himself. First significant thing we read about this guy, he's choosing something for himself. That's not a good sign. He looked, he chose something he felt was attractive. We know it's going to be bad for him. And then it says, and he journeyed east. And we've read that before. We've read that a number of times in the scripture since the beginning chapter. And we know what that means, don't we? Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden to the east. And we know that Cain, when he turned his back on God, he went into the east. And we know that when the, the Tower of Babel was being built, that this was done in the east. And we know that east is in the scriptures often a a symbol or a metaphor for going away from God. Because the temple, the tabernacle first, then later the temple were oriented in such a way that when you came towards the Holy of Holies, the closer you came to the presence of God, the more west you were going. And when you were going away from the Holy of Holies, you were going east. And Lot travels east. 
and thus they separated from each other. This is not a simple spreading out, but staying connected, which is quite likely what Abram was looking for. This is a real separation. They're going their separate ways, and this is by Lot's choice. And look at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Abram settled in the land of promise. Abram settled in the land of blessing, while Lot didn't. Lot goes away. Lot goes east. Lot settled among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. It's hard to ascertain because we don't know exactly where these cities were, whether it was outside the boundaries of Canaan, but the Holy Spirit puts it this way. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. So there seems to be either that Lot is outside or at least on the very border of the land of Canaan. He's going the wrong way. And he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. And once again, there's all these warning signs in our text. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And now here's another one, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Well, what's going on here with this choice of Lot? How often does it happen in our lives that there are just so many little faint signals and some that are not so faint. There's something which looks very attractive to us. There's something that we really want. There's something that we think will make us very, very happy and very, very, it would be very profitable for us. And we ignore the warning signs. Our spiritual antenna are buzzing, but we, we ignore them. Because we want to make the choice which just seems so good for the flesh. There's this really great job. It has all these benefits and it pays super well. And you get to live in a great house and there's this and it's great for my career and this and that and the other. It's just amazing. And the Holy Spirit's saying, yeah, but in that city, is there a faithful church of God to worship in? You're like, yeah, yeah well, I'll deal with that later. I'm going to think about that right now. Don't spoil, don't spoil my joy. Don't mention the negatives. It's not good to suppress our conscience when the Holy Spirit is prodding us. That's what Lot did. How often do we do that in bigger or smaller things in our life where we, where we suppress those questions and where we don't consider the consequences of our choice for our relationship with God, which should be the very first matter on the list of things to be considered. How will this help me come closer to God? How will this help me worship God better? How will this help me become more holy? How will this help me become more useful in God's service and in God's kingdom? That's the first thing on the list. But it's not for Lot. And so in verse 14, Lot has separated. God comes to Abram. And here's Abram, hold on, he's an old man. He's got these promises of land and of descendants, but he's got neither. And now it's Abram's turn to lift up his eyes. God says, Abram, lift up your eyes. Look from the place you are, north, south, east, west, all around. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your offspring, your seed, 
and I'm going to make your offspring so numerous that they're going to be like the dust of the earth. You won't be able to count them. So Abram gets to lift up his eyes. What does Abram see? He sees nothing. He looks around everywhere. He sees no children, no grandchildren, no great multitude of descendants. He sees not one square foot of land that belonged to him. He sees an, a semi-arid wasteland where it's hard enough for him to survive with his people and with his flocks. God says, lift up your eyes. And all you've got, Abram, are promises. That's all you've got. You have nothing yet that you can take to the bank. Just promises. And everything that Abram sees goes against what God is saying. Every human evaluation of the situation says this cannot be true. It cannot come true. It's just too much to hope for. Now, in this promise here in Genesis 13, God just opens up a little bit more the flower of the unfolding of the, 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 the redemptive history here, the revelation of his plan. Genesis 12, when Abram was first called, it's just very simple. Go to this land, I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed. You'll have a great name. Then in Genesis 12, 7, he, he adds a little bit more detail. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, there's going to be children from your body. And then Genesis 13 here, verse 14, he says, all this land I, you see, I will give to you and your seed, your offspring forever. I'll make them as the dust of the earth. So there's the promise of land, the promise of people. Well, what's going on here? Well, God is promising that through Abram, he will work to restore what we have lost in Adam. Adam and Eve were told, I have made you, a king, made you king and queen over the whole earth. You will have dominion over the whole earth. You have the whole earth, the whole land. And you must be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I want this whole land full of people who live to my glory. And so that's what God is promising to do now through, through Abram. The only way that Abram can react here is in faith. And that's what he's told to do. Verse 17, God says, look, stand up, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land. I will give it to you. Abram is going to go out and get up. He's going to move around. While Lot, his nephew, is getting all comfortably ensconced close by the city of Sodom with all of its amenities and all of the comforts and delights of life on this earth. Abram's plodding around the land of promise, looking at stuff that doesn't belong to him, and just believing that this is his and the descendants that he doesn't have yet. He must walk by faith. And so he moves again, keeps moving, and he comes to Hebron, comes to the Oaks of Mamre. Mamre is the name of a guy. Mamre is a brother of Aner and Eskol, and those three brothers are allies of Abram. They're going to come in handy in the next chapter when there's a war. And so he, he camps out there by the oaks of Mamre. He becomes allies with these three brothers. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that it's possible for Abram to 
to live there with all of his people, all of his cattle and, and flocks, and have a, a meaningful relationship with other people that also have flocks and people and cattle, and be able to get along without fighting. You can do that with people that he's not related to. Why couldn't he have done that with Lot? This is what he would have hoped to do with Lot. Lot wasn't interested. What does he do there? He does what he always does wherever he moves anywhere. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You remember Psalm 133? Psalm 133 ends that way. For there in Zion, where God's dwelling place is, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Wherever God is worshipped, that is the source of blessing. It's not, where is the most money? Where is the most excitement? Where is the best economy? Where is the greatest pleasure in the things of this world? That's not where it is. It's where is God worshipped? So he builds that altar. And you remember, children, what altar means? Literally, in Hebrew, it means sacrificer, something you use to sacrifice things, right? So you don't build a sacrificer without using it. When he builds an altar, we know what he's doing. He brings animals. He sacrifices them. And every time the blood of an animal is shed, with Abram's every sacrifice, he's saying, I need Jesus Christ. I need forgiveness of my sins. I'm waiting for the Messiah. My soul awaits the great Redeemer. That's what it's all about. That's what this whole story is all about. God preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel is what Lot has turned his back on. And that is why God separates them. It's better for Abram to be all alone in faith, waiting on Christ, than entangled with those who seek the comfort in the false promises of this world. Now, what are we to think of all of this, and how are we to apply it to our lives? Well, one thing we ought to notice is that Lot didn't automatically and magically become 100% bad the minute he moved away from Abram. He knew about the true God, and, and when you come to the New Testament, you read 2 Peter chapter 2, he is called a righteous man. Don't have time to go there right now, but Peter calls him three times. Three times a righteous man who was really upset. As he lived there in Sodom, he was really upset in his righteous heart about all the bad things happening at his neighbor's house and in the city in which he had chosen to live. He's not just written off by God, nor by God's people. Next chapter, we're going to, read, we're going to talk about that. He's, he's saved by Abram from, from being kidnapped by these foreign kings. And then later on, he's saved by the angels whom God sends. He's saved by the angels from destruction. There's not a total write-off right away. That it's 100% suddenly he's not useful to talk about anymore or, to, or to, he's not worth anything. Brothers and sisters, you can know the things of God yourself. You can even kind of half believe them. You can start to walk in a worldly way 
And because you know the things of God, and because you know enough to order your life more or less according to the principles of God's Word, you're not going to taste the full consequences of your choices in your generation. Your children and your grandchildren will suffer the consequences of your unfaithfulness. That's often why it's kind of hard to... To, 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 to deal with because people start making bad choices and they start becoming uh, not so committed to the Lord, but yet they continue to be pretty good people. And you think, well, is it so bad? But with Lot, we can see what happens. We see where it ends. He loses his wife. He loses his sons-in-law. He ends up with nothing. He ends up in a cave the victim of incest by his own daughters. That's where this choice of Lot is going to bring him and his descendants. And so through his daughters, he fathers the Ammonites and the Moabites, two peoples who will cause a lot of grief to the children of the promise and to the people of God throughout history. The question we need to ask ourselves is at what price do we choose the things of this world and neglect the worship of God? How much time do we spend to improve our lot in this world versus how much time do we spend in prioritizing Bible study and prayer and Christian conversation? I'm, I'm preaching to a church which has a very low number of men involved in Bible study. We need to ask ourselves, brothers, have we lifted our eyes and chosen the well-watered, lush land closer to Sodom? And do we know what that will cost us and our children and God's people? These are hard admonitions that we receive from the Word of God this morning, but there's always room for faith in return, brothers and sisters. You know, even Lot's train wreck of a life and the mess that's caused by his worldly choices, many, many hundreds of years later, one of his descendants, Ruth the Moabites, a descendant of Lot, she goes the other way. Lot turns away from the place where God is worshipped. He says, I don't really need that. I know God. I'm a righteous man. Go live where things are good. Ruth does the opposite. She goes the other way, and she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, I'm going to go with you. I will go with you. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And that faith of that young woman, God blesses so that she is drawn into God's covenant people. She comes to the place where he is worshipped, and she becomes a mother of the Lord Jesus Christ a mother from whom our Savior is born. And so there's always room. There's always the door open for return in faith. Brothers and sisters, we are sojourning in this world. This is our inheritance, but not yet. It's not ours yet. All of it belongs to us, little children, boys, girls. You are princes, you are princesses. You will rule over this world, but not yet. Jesus has to come back first. And so, like Abram, our father, we believe, we hold on by faith to the promises. 
It's our inheritance, but not yet. So we don't put down roots. We build altars. Wherever we go, we build temples, churches, where gathered congregations, living temples of the living God, hold on by faith to these glorious promises of the whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea, the whole world being full of so many people that worship God that you can't count them. That's the promise. And we hold on to that promise because it's more precious, as we sang in Psalm 119, it's more precious than silver and gold to us. We live in faith. We live in faith and we wait for the day when we will, our faith will be made sight. It might mean, as we're about to sing, it might mean that our friends may fail and leave us. It might mean that we have to give up on some really cool opportunities which look like they'll be awesome for our bank account or for our joy in this world. But we know that nothing compares to that treasure which is above all earthly value, that treasure for which it is worth giving up and selling everything to buy that pearl of great price. Jesus is our all. Jesus is our portion. And he is enough for the believer. Amen.